0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. Our new summer issue is out, and it's chock full of places to go and things to see. Check out what's happening at our 35-plus partner museums. There are concerts, walks, tours, art shows, all perfect for a day trip. Get your copy at ctexplore.org. What's being done to save the state's industrial history? In today's episode, I'll talk to Renee Trebert, the Preservation Services Coordinator for Adaptive Reuse and Redevelopment for Industrial Buildings at Preservation Connecticut. Our podcast engineer Patrick O'Sullivan and I will share some of our favorite places to go around the state where you can see old mills and factories that are being used for fun new uses. And we'll hear from Ilona Samoji, co-founder of Ball & Socket Arts in Cheshire, Connecticut about an old mill with a Cinderella story that will open this summer. Connecticut was at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution in the United States. Small brooks and rivers were dammed to create water power that turned machinery and the state's textile, precision manufacturing, and metal casting industries were born. Thousands of products were produced, and the state attracted investors, inventors, and immigrants to work in the factories. But as industry moved out in the last half of the 20th century, these cathedrals of industry became vacant and abandoned across the state. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Hi. Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Renee, let's start with the work that Preservation Connecticut has done to really identify and make the public aware of the significance of these mills and factories that have such great history. Tell me about the Mills Making Places Project.
2: Um, the State Historic Preservation Office uh, grant gave Preservation Connecticut a grant to document the historic industrial properties uh, throughout the state of Connecticut And the idea there was we were recognizing that we were losing some to neglect or demolition. And the project was both for a survey, but also it had a grant component. We were able to award $340,000 in grants across nine sites throughout the state, including uh, a site in Cheshire, Ball and Socket uh, Arts, And these projects were intended to kind of provide seed money to help move reuse forward. We, during the course of the survey, we identified about 1500 historic industrial sites of all sizes and types. from textile mills, which many people already know about, to uh, some of the uh, industrial parts makers, uh, metal parts, and small scale uh, manufacturers as well. Some interesting, just fun sites. You know, we, for example... Uh, out in Torrington, there are a series of sites for the Torinco Co. that were designed by Marcel Breuer, whom most people think of uh, not as an industrial designer, but rather um, for commercial and residential architecture. In addition to identifying the historic industrial properties, we also identified some housing that's associated with them. And then we took all of this information and we turned it into a website, the Mills Making Places of Connecticut website, where you can look up any mill and any industry uh, you can think of across the state.
0: So now you've got all this information about where they are, what they produced, and why they're historic. But what are the actual challenges to reusing a mill or a factory building or a complex?
2: Among the larger challenges are the environmental issues that are often encountered. And I think you'll hear a little bit more about that from uh, Ilona. Uh, because certainly ball and socket having made buttons had some of many of those issues. So that's a huge one. Structural issues can often come into play, particularly if a building has been vacant for some time and not cared for. Location can be a, an opportunity or it can be a, a difficulty. It can be an opportunity when it's located in an area, for example, that's near the railroad. as Often was the case, or near water, as often was the case. But sometimes they're located in neighborhoods where it's difficult, there's no residential component, and it may be difficult to find new uses for them.
0: So, what are some of the programs that are available to help developers, or property owners, or nonprofits actually reuse these buildings?
2: Uh, from a preservation perspective, one of the most important programs is the state historic tax credit and the federal historic tax credit. Uh, the tax credits can be used for those properties that have by, been uh, listed on either the state or national register. They, pro- they often provide a tranche of money that can be used towards the redevelopment.
0: Renee, could you just explain what a brownfield is? A brownfield is a
2: is a site that has been identified as having certain levels of contamination that must be resolved before the property can be reused. And typically, the environmental remediation is extensive and and uh, costly. In addition to the historic tax credits, there are programs through DECD to deal with to help deal with brownfields and environmental. Concerns such as soil and groundwater contamination, hazardous materials within the buildings.
0: And what do you see across the state in terms of the economic development impact of these mills being reused?
2: There's tremendous interest, actually, in the reuse of these mill buildings, both from local communities, but also from developers who have uh, seen that there are these incentives that will help them to redevelop. And so you get a regeneration of activity in communities where uh, the, the mills and other historic buildings are redeveloped, people back on the streets. And it really kind of energizes places.
0: As people are going to be out this summer, what are some of the projects that you think are really interesting that they might go see or drive by? Well...
2: One of the projects that was truly um, kind of awe-inspiring that they were able to pull this together because of the complexity of it is the Montgomery Mill adaptation. Um, It is now residential. They used to make tinsel and and, uh, wires and stuff like that it is located between the connecticut river and a canal in windsor locks along the canal there is a pedestrian or bicycle trailway and it's a wonderful amenity and so that is a that's a great one to you can walk by it and you can see how beautiful the buildings as they're rehabbed are
0: someone who is usually behind the scenes patrick o'sullivan our podcast engineer is joining me to talk about some of our favorite fun places around the state that feature reused mill buildings.
3: Yes, I am usually recording everyone. You don't always hear me, but I'm in every episode behind the scenes.
0: We'll put the addresses and websites in the show notes and let us know your favorites by leaving a comment on our social media. I'll start with one that's perfect for families, the Carousel Museum in Bristol. I just recently visited the Carousel Museum for the first time, and I was enchanted by the dozens of whimsical hand-carved carousel animals that are on display. I, of course, expected the horses, but there's also pigs, rabbits, tigers, and lions, too. The museum is housed in a 1900-era factory with 20,000 square feet. That means they can have a full-size carousel inside the building just waiting to give you a ride. It's the perfect place to bring children. Patrick, I know you're a fan of a day trip to Bridgeport. Where do you like to go?
3: Yes, well as a sound tech kind of person specifically and just as a movie fan and vinyl fan, my first stop is always in Bridgeport at the Archive. The Archive is on Congress Street. It's a retro movie and music store. It's in a 1980s warehouse building and if you're into anything retro, mid-20th century and back, it's a must. It opened in 2017 and it's also a storefront for Vinegar Syndrome, which is a film restoration and distribution company whose mission is to restore cult and lost films. And if you have ever bought a remaster or if you have a newer television or a DVD or a Blu-ray player and sometimes you see an old movie that has been remastered, uh, what they're doing is scanning in the original film negative of, like, an old movie, um, and Vinegar Syndrome has the machine to do that. With that, you can also find a lot of antiques there. There are a lot of used items in addition to the new stuff, so you can find laser discs, which were from the 80s, and are huge vinyl-sized DVDs that some folks may remember. There's Betas, there's VHS, there's... Cassette, there's pretty much any kind of old technology that you might be interested in. uh, And I find lots of good vinyl there, lots of music. If you go on a Sunday, you can also stop by Mongers Market, which is on Railroad Avenue. It's in the heart of Bridgeport's historic manufacturing district along both sides of the railroad tracks. Mongers Market sells vintage industrial salvage and antiques in a 75,000 square foot refurbished factory. I've seen all sorts of cool typewriters and things like that there. There's also dozens of vendors with almost anything vintage that you can think of. And not too far away in Stratford is Two Roads Brewery. It's in a 100-year-old factory. The brewery owners did a $600,000 cleanup of contaminated soil, asbestos, and lead paint with a state grant, and then they renovated the building. And everyone I know drinks Two Roads, so check it out.
0: I'm gonna recommend a day trip in Hartford. Real Art Ways on Arbor Street in Hartford's Parkville neighborhood is in a former typewriter factory. The Parkville section was once home to several major factories, including Columbia Bicycle and the Underwood and Royal Typewriter companies. You can check out their exhibits by emerging artists or see a movie in their art cinema. And then you can take a short drive over to Parkville Market on Park Street for lunch or dinner. It's a large food hall housed in the former Capital City Lumber Company. So many choices, including Vietnamese, Salvadorian, South American, as well as barbecue. I'll talk to Ilona Simonji, co-founder of Ball and Socket Arts in Cheshire, Connecticut, about the exciting things that are coming up for this new art center. We'll be back in a minute with my guest. The Litchfield Historical Society's newest exhibit, To Come to a Land of Milk and Honey, Litchfield and the Connecticut Western Reserve, Opens April 21st, 2023. Learn about this land in present-day Ohio that was reserved by Connecticut after the American Revolution for its continued use and settlement. Exhibit supported by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. Learn more and plan your visit at org. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. I know, Ilona, now we're going to turn to you because you're doing a different thing with your mill. You're working with a nonprofit organization to really create a community arts center. How did you get involved in that?
1: It's a very difficult question to answer, because over these 11 years that I've been working on it, I've asked myself, why, why, why? (laughs) I'm finally at a point in this project where we're beginning to open sections of this very interesting old factory site. And the excitement that I felt when I started is returning. Uh, But it has been a difficult project for all the reasons that Renee was talking about earlier, environmental concerns, building failures due to neglect. And, uh, and I think really one of the biggest issues in, in getting this project up was the the faith that it can happen. These are not easy things to take an old factory, especially one that has environmental contamination, and clean it up and open it back to the public. It takes a lot, huge team. It takes a lot of people working together uh, with a shared goal and not to mention tons and tons of money. So, you know, when we started out, we were very, I think, optimistic and idealistic because the site is just full of potential. So we saw it. I lived in this town since I was five years old. We saw, you know, I've seen it in my entire life. It was a working factory up until the mid 90s. Um, And then it was stopped being a working factory. And then it was just kind of like this building's looking really sad. Like what's going on? And I had a couple of friends who um, were high school classmates of mine, and we we all ended up working in the arts professionally and had visited many arts centers, you know, around the country and even overseas, that were these wonderful places where art is shown, where people come together, they dine, they watch performances. And it just seemed like, you know, Cheshire really does nothing like this. And we don't even have anything like in a 30-mile radius, right, that uh, that feels like these places we've been to in other parts of the country. But, like, we have this building that's right here, and it's in an incredible location. It's right on the trail. It's the same thing that Renee was just talking about with enthusiasm. Is like, you know, people can bike here because it's right on the trail, and it's very close to the major highways, and it's, uh, it just seems like we should, we should make an art center here. It was a very kind of like a very honest and simple thought. Uh, and then we just, um, we ended up being the only interested party. It went on sale in the open market and uh, no, no developer wanted it. It was too risky. It was, there was no clear pathway to a profitable venture from it. So we just hung in there because we wanted it to happen. You know, it's like, it's a great idea. And that sort of germ of that idea is the thing that just kept going. Like there there was no reason not to pursue it. So we had a lot of support from the DECD, the the Office of the Brownfield Remediation and Redevelopment, which Renee mentioned earlier, uh, which is part of the economic sort of strategy up in Hartford about how, you know, what do you do to uh, take these places that are pulling economic values down in our towns, you know, abandoned factories are very potentially dangerous places. They pull down property values. How can we get these things revitalized or, you know, demolish? They also help demolish these properties, but it's such a waste to demolish them when you have some, when you have these structures that have such inherent Positive qualities. So our particular building is interesting because it's right on West Main Street. So it's in this potential, very vibrant. It's a little mini downtown that we have in in Cheshire um, that has restaurants. Um, it has a music school. We just had a, a new neighbor move in. It was a digital marketing company. So it's this spot in our town which really has the potential to become just a very vibrant, walkable. Uh, downtown area which we which we don't have which much of um, much of cheshire does not have
0: let's go back for a second and i visited the site in march and it was jumping it had workmen all over the place and it was exciting to see but let's try to paint a picture for the listener Uh, when you say building actually there's multiple buildings and it's a big site can you tell us a little bit about the history of the factory, and then how big that property is, and why it's so interesting architecturally?
1: Sure. It's um the the site is three three point oh two acres, and uh, currently there are five buildings on the site, which we all and which we intend to um, to keep all of them. The buildings were originally built in eighteen fifty um, on this location as a button factory and they made buttons of various different materials glass buttons metal buttons um they continued manufacturing buttons and other small metal um fixtures and objects and closures the buildings shifted and evolved over the years um once they when they were built they were all made of wood and then they sort of got all turned mostly turned over to brick structures the fireproof structures in the turn of the 20th century. So by around 1918, the site kind of achieved its final look where where we are today. But always sort of in this kind of um, organic, let's add a space here. Let's put a second floor on this level. Let's sort of elongate this building. So, you know, the whole structure is very, feels very sort of nonlinear. You kind of have to wind your way through the buildings and get lost a little bit. It's got uh, three distinct styles on the site, which I think makes it very interesting from the road. We have very traditional um, brick factory, two floor factory building that has large steel sash windows, the big steel sash factory windows. And then we have a wooden building, which um, we believe used up much of the material from the original wooden buildings and sort of rebuilt them later. Uh, we have that wooden building is a very long gable roofed building that has 62 wooden windows in it, which we all uh, had all restored for our first phase opening. And this was like a kind of a big deal and a big fight with the architects, because everybody just assumes you're going to replace all the windows. But actually, when they were built 150 years ago, they're, they're much, much better (laughs) than anything you buy today. So all you have to do is kind of like, Take them apart, fix them, put them back together, and they're good to go. So um, we're very, very proud of our restored windows. Um, and then we have a third building, which was done in this sort of neo-Jacobean style, which it just doesn't feel like it fits anywhere in New England because it has a sort of a castellated roof line. It has a emblazoned with a coat of arms of the um, county of Chestershire in England, which is what Cheshire com- derives from. And then it has this um, sign on the front of it that says, Wallet and socket manufacturing company, which we very recently had um, restored. Uh, so that now it looks, you know, looks like it did in 1919 when it was first erected. So it's uh, and, and there's also leaded windows in that building and it's sort of a, a brownstone structure and it's sort of distinct, you know, you can't quite miss it. So it really is a, almost like a playful collection of architecture, like a pastiche of architecture, which I think makes our building, you know, very unique. Uh, I do love now all mill architecture. Um, I had, you know, ever since I started this project, everywhere I go on trains or driving around, I'm always sort of staring at my windows at these, you know, abandoned factory comp, uh, complexes woefully and saying, oh, we should, rest- what could we do with this one and restore this one? Um, these factory buildings are so incredibly well built. You know, they're sturdy, they will last. I mean, this building is already over 100 years old. It will keep going as long as you just keep the roof from leaking you know, keep the windows from being broken by vandals. You just have to believe that this thing is worth saving and it will keep paying back for another hundred or more years.
0: You know, it's funny because when I got the uh, information about the ball and socket arts, I, some reason ball and socket, I was thinking of something really sort of big or substantial. And so I think it's so fascinating that it was actually SNAPS. What we call snaps now. So that that kind of that kind of surprised me. and it certainly is part of that whole Connecticut tradition of what's called precision manufacturing, where things have to be, even though they're mass produced, they have to be done so carefully that they will match up or that pieces will will work together. So snaps is definitely the case. There's such a uh, energy at your site now, and I know you're going to open it in phases. You've got an ice cream shop open already. And your building is right next to the Farmington canal trail, which has a huge sign in a parking lot. It's, it's in a wonderful location. And I, when I was at the, at the uh, bald socket in March, it was too early for ice cream. I don't t- say that lightly because ice cream appeals to me almost 24 hours a day, but I will be going back this summer when the ice cream shop is open. She's,
1: she's open now.
0: <laughs> That's terrific. So I will yeah. be back. But, uh, That kind of leads me to my question about when you work with a site like this that has not just one building, but several buildings and parking and an an acreage, what's your vision for the site and what kind of things do you have coming up this
1: summer? We are uh, currently in construction on three simultaneous projects on the site and we're about to start another project. We have a very, very large building, which is building one, which is sort of the, really the center of this, the heart and soul of this site. It's about 45,000 square feet of usable space inside. And uh, these great sort of vast rooms, which were the initial inspiration for it to be used as an art center, a place to display art. That is sort of the biggest chunk that we need to fund to get that building online. We do have some money coming our way from both, uh, Johanna Hayes has secured some money from the federal government. We have some more money coming from the Brownfield office to do significant roof, uh, roof repair. Um, And allowing a sprinkler system to be put in, which will enormously help us move the project along that we can actually start dividing that very large space into manageable chunks. Because we found that the best way for us to really get going is to just get going. If we if we've been sitting around waiting for, you know, twenty five million dollars to land on our lap, we'd be doing this forever. But we got enough money to open building two. And that's when the ice cream created this friendship with Sweet Claude's Ice Cream, which is an ice cream shop that's been in Cheshire since 1987. And, you know, it's a beloved institution and owned by a young woman who just, you know, felt like, no, this is the perfect spot for her ice cream parlor. It's, she had the concrete floor she needed for manufacturing, a really sweet, historic storefront to, to house the parlor in. And since she opened last summer, it's really been like just nonstop people coming to get ice cream. So um, it was a really, really lovely way for us to kick this project off, kick the construction project off. We are currently working on completing the second floor of that same building. We do have an excellent tenant uh, waiting to the, for the final like inking of the contract so we can announce it. But it's something that I'm very, very excited about and will enormously enhance Uh, our site um, with new audiences, and it's also an exquisite arts use. So it's mission appropriate. We are currently working on building three, which is a small building that's right behind building two. It used to be a workshop, cinder block, wood structure, kind of sweet, quirky. Um, It's going to house our first permanent gallery space. So we'll be able to open to the public some art shows this summer. And the second floor of that same building is where our Uh, offices and headquarters are going to be as well as our conference spaces and classroom space because we are starting writers workshops coming up this summer so that's a huge part of our mission is to offer writers workshops downstairs we have the gallery and then moving to the back of the site we're working on the the parking lot and we have a partnership we were able to craft with the town of Cheshire Um, they're helping us build that parking lot there's going to be 66 parking spaces back there and that's a huge benefit when you're making a trying to create a large development like we are, is just, you know, making sure that you have the parking available for the people who insist on driving. Like we're hoping to get a lot of people coming on bicycles or on foot, but a lot of people are still going to want to drive. And that rear parking lot also gives us the opportunity to hold some events back there. So we're going to have some free music concerts starting in August this summer on Friday nights. And it also has this sort of accidental kind of use because we need to put chain link fencing around the building one that is incomplete to separate that building from the people who might be using the parking lot um, and the trail. And that fencing will be transformed into sort of, you know, um, street art kind of exhibitions we're going to put an open call out very soon for people who want to uh, there's a lot of people transforming um, chain link fencing into something really delightful and inventive with many many different materials so uh, we're sort of hoping to just kind of create an art walk back there with on the chain link fencing while it's up and we continue to work on building one
0: That sounds terrific. And I definitely plan to go to the ice cream shop and then sit and look at look at the buildings. That back parking area is so large and it's off the street, which is terrific in between the buildings. And so, as you said, you'll be able to have outdoor events and pop up fairs and different things really on that site pretty soon. Renee, is there anything else you want to mention about how people can find out more about mills in their town?
2: Um, Certainly, we have the the website, which is a really great tool. Uh, We routinely field questions from people um, who go on there. It's intended for folks who are looking for reuse opportunities, but there's also for people who want to experience mills, there's a section called Experience Mills where we try and call out uh, activities that you can participate in or attend uh, in mill historic mills. So if your interest is in breweries, for example, you can go to the food and drink and kind of uh, search based on geography or whatever. We also generally um, are available to assist people who are interested in uh, reusing uh, historic mills. And we provide guidance on the resources that are available and how they can get access to them. For instance, we had talked about the historic tax credits. We can help to work with SHPO on a determination of eligibility um, to help a project get listed so that it can access tax credits.
0: And it's so fabulous. Preservation Connecticut offers so many knowledgeable staff people that will go out. They have a, even have a program called the Circuit Writers because they will go out anywhere in the state and meet with somebody on site to really look at their building. And then be able to make those recommendations. And so as Renee says, there's a lot of information on the website, but Preservation Connecticut also offers a lot of in-person expertise as well. Ilona, where could people find out more about what's happening at
1: Ball and Socket? We have a Facebook page. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Um, We also have a website, which is www.ballandsocket.org. And that could lead you to just about any any place. But if you're also, you know, going on the trail... (laughs) just stop and check it out we are really right on route 68 between uh, Wallingford and Waterbury right in the sort of west main um, village section of Cheshire so you can stop by and um yes we're really we could we absolutely respond to any sort of inquiries uh through the website it comes right into our office either lands on my lap or um Lydia's, who is our director of programming. We welcome inquiries. Uh, We are a nonprofit organization. We do we do exist by uh, donate donations um, from the public as well as the state. But we really um, we're really growing our audience. So if you're interested in learning more about the project, please reach out.
0: Great. Fresh episodes of Grading the Netmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the Donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated. We thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.